I'm honored to have Dr. David Leong from the Seattle Pacific University uh, here as my guest. He's the Associate Professor of Missiology at Seattle Pacific University, uh, SPU. Uh, and prior to becoming faculty at SPU, he served in churches and in community organizing in and around Seattle. As a scholar and practitioner, David examines the theological meaning of the city in an increasingly globalized and urbanized world. At the intersection of intercultural and missiological discourse, he sees the city as a rich context for a theological reflection about topics ranging from hip-hop and the built environment to multiculturalism and missional ecclesiology. Those are a lot of really long words, and maybe we can unpack some of that. Uh, David is the author of Race and Place, How Urban Geography Shapes the Journey to Reconciliation, and he lives in Seattle's Rainier Valley with his wife and two sons. David, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be here. Really appreciate you having me on and looking forward to a good conversation. Yeah. Well, I thought I'd start off just with a kind of question to get to know you a bit better. Um, so you mentioned in your most recent book, Race in Place, that you grew up pretty much all over the U.S. as a third-generation Chinese-American. Um, how would you characterize your journey from that sort of relative Chinese church insularity towards uh, business school at, at UW? then to Regent College, where you and I share some, uh, some, some history, um, and then into your PhD at Fuller, where we also share some history. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a journey. Um, in light of time, you know, I'll try to give you the, the highlights. Um, as I think about uh, perhaps framing this under the, or sort of in the context of what we might call like a racial consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, I mean, there is a lot of there are a lot of geographic locations that form the backdrop of this journey. Um, both mm-hmm. um, Detroit, Michigan, where um, my grandparents immigrated, mm-hmm. and uh, where there's kind of a small Chinese immigrant community going back. I mean, um, which has its own history, but really, my connections to Detroit are, are kind of small. Um, mm-hmm. While my parents were born there, and mm-hmm. you know, while there's roots there, we left when I was pretty young. And so mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, my parents having been born and raised in Detroit and growing up in the 60s during a pretty tumultuous time in the city, mm-hmm. um, I largely wanted to escape from there mm-hmm. and like raise me and my two sisters in a much more like suburban context where we could have the opportunity to go to good schools. And there wasn't, I don't think, much thought for what um, culturally would would be um you know, there for us in North Carolina. I, I grew up mostly in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. But I realized too that from from my parents' own sense of self, like they, as, as second generation immigrants, and really as as people coming from what we might call like the colorblind generation, you know, mm-hmm. who they really wanted to see themselves as American. I don't think they had much thought for like, oh, racial diversity will be important for you know raising my kids. But I mean. <laughs> From pretty much the time of like preschool all the way through elementary, you know, we were like the only Asian people that I, I knew. Yeah, um, yeah. And I would say that I didn't even really realize that was the case uh, until sort of, you know, mid to late adolescence mm. uh, when we moved from North Carolina to California. And we spent a little bit of time in the Bay Area and then in Sacramento before moving to the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, I would say that probably those, those places and those moves kind of just... Um, you know, defined my social world and helped me to understand who I was. And we know that, you know, most, you know, kids are not really thinking um, in a complex way about race or belonging. 
Mm. But as especially as adolescence sort of ramps up, um, I'd say somewhere between, you know, high school in Vancouver, Washington and college in Seattle and making the big transition there, you know, things started to click for me a little bit in terms Mm. of both um, understanding my racial identity as a Mm. Chinese American, Asian American, Mm -hmm. Um, but also thinking about how that intersected with, with my faith. And I think the short version of this would just be that, um, you know, the world, I think like for a lot of folks, um, who enter university, um, especially a big state university, like the university of Washington, just the world that that's where my world really opened. Mm. And I realized kind of how small, um, the experiences that I had up to that point had, had been. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, I think, in the church, maybe to go, to go back to the Chinese church for a moment, mm-hmm. um, there were numerous points between kind of my undergraduate time and, and maybe toward the middle of my time at Regent, mm. where I just recognized, you know, as grateful as I was for how much those contexts of what we might broadly just call like Asian American Christianity, mm-hmm. so, so grateful for how that formed me and for the yeah. good friends that I made, for how it helped me to understand my past and my and my present Um but I think towards, you know, somewhere along the line at my, at my time at Regent and really in that process of broader vocational discernment, I was realizing too, gosh, that is that sort of Chinese American, Asian American, North American evangelical you know, context yeah. Yeah. is a really, really narrow sliver mm-hmm. um, and a, a, of social existence, right? Mm-hmm. And I was beginning mm-hmm. to get a sense as I was studying theology and also thinking about vocation, you know, whether that was going to be in the church or in academia, I was also getting a sense that just that the world that I was called to was so much more broad and diverse mm-hmm. than that particular social slice. Right. And I think mm-hmm. while it was very comforting and forming, and that's a, a really necessary part of racial identity formation, right? It's kind of having that context to, to understand who you are, mm-hmm. but it just, I just got a sense, you know, somewhere between college and, and seminary that, um, that I was being called to something mm-hmm. uh, much broader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think um, and so that that I don't know if that makes sense, but that that sort of inkling of a discernment of vocation at that stage helped me to look back on my story mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In, in new ways. Um, what's so, really well, what's really funny about not funny, what's really interesting about what you've just said is that you appear to have like the the fewest number of hangups of somebody who's growing up going to a Chinese church than, I, than anybody <laughs> I've ever met. Because I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really know. I'm not here to therapize you, but I am. <laughs> I do hear a lot of people who come out of uh, places like that, who grew up going to Chinese churches and are just like done with it. And instead, I hear you're you're saying it in a more positive way, which is like, no, I, I, I realize this is a very narrow sliver of, you know, uh, our, our society, and I want to be doing more and reaching out beyond the borders of, you know, very insular sort of existence. Yeah, I mean, you're getting the positive spin on it for sure. I mean, <laughs> there was certainly a season between, you know, I think I, I went to seminary out of a mm-hmm. sort of deep sense of duty from a Chinese church that that I think, you know, what I'm grateful to. And many, it's weird. This church is actually just a few blocks from where I live. I drive by almost every day, mm. and it is um, it's a place that I have like a lot of really fond memories. Mm-hmm. But I would also say like in a therapeutic session that I would have lots of baggage, you know, like in terms of <laughs> understanding how that place and that context like formed me for good. Yeah. But also created a lot of, yeah, interesting emotional, spiritual attachments or associations with things mm-hmm. um, that are not healthy, that mm-hmm. are certainly, um, <laughs> that I still carry with me and that I think about it. So I think it's, it's kind of, if anything, um, I'm, I'm in a healthier place of, 
recognizing the the brokenness of that tradition and saying, you know, what can I, what can I do with that in a constructive way at this stage yeah. of my life? But it definitely, but there definitely were some rocky years of transition where I was kind of done with it. You know, as you did to just use your language to say, like, <laughs> you know, I'm just so done with this kind of really insular community that is so turned in on itself mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so kind of blind to its own cultural biases and its mm-hmm. own, um, um, kind of dangerous syncretism of mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. I, and, and every, every, context does this right like every every subculture um sort of baptizes their cultural bias right mm-hmm. and sort of and calls yeah. it christian um, yes and i think mm-hmm. it's just uh, so i think to some degree you know, there's some really distorted ways that has happened in asian american christianity for sure mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I, I suspect that's a, a different a different question maybe later today i don't know <laughs> <laughs> sure uh, i will say though um going a little bit off script for us um these days, I'm hearing a lot more gratefulness from um, African-American people talking about the black church. Um, I hear a lot more rootedness with that. And maybe that's because of the different histories we've had um, as Asian-Americans or Asian-North Americans versus being African-American. Um, but I don't hear a lot of gratefulness from from Asian-North Americans regarding the places they grew up in and, and the churches mm-hmm. they're part of. Uh, have, have you ever noticed that yourself? It's really interesting. I'd have to think about it. I, I think that, um, you know, just finished, you know, uh, watching that um, PBS special on the Black Church, which mm. was really life-giving for me as someone mm. who's, as someone for whom it, it's it's weird. I think maybe somewhere in this conversation, we'll talk about how much, um, uh, how formative Black Christianity has been for me, which is maybe an unusual part of my journey. But, um, mm-hmm. but in terms of thinking about, yeah, I'm, I mean, you're in that context a little bit more than me in terms of hearing from folks who are processing these questions. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I, I would agree that those traditions are so different and that probably just speaking um, anecdotally about my peer group, mm-hmm. that as, as people are processing their contact with, you know, either the Chinese immigrant church or the second mm-hmm. and third generation Asian American church, there's there's definitely more baggage, <laughs> more more baggage than um, kind of glowing gratitude. Yeah, and, yeah. and it may just be um, a sort of generational transition that people are in, and, and certainly too, kind of this um, this sort of present cultural milieu where Asian mm-hmm. Americans are trying to understand themselves, mm-hmm. who are coming coming of age in a time and wanting to find their mm-hmm. uh, find their their unique voice. Mm. And, and certainly Asian Americans have, because we're such a, you know, demographically a, a smaller piece of the North American population, but also because of our cultural history, you know, caught between whiteness and blackness, right. there's been a sort of, uh, whether it's been internalized, a sort of um, marginalization of Asian American voices. And so I, I feel a lot more angst, if that's a, a kind of broad way to put it. I hear a lot of angst from Asian Americans wanting to own their voice and find their place. Yeah. And feeling a lot of frustration, saying the church should help them to do that. Right, so right. The church, um, you know, squelched or or, or distracted yeah. from, or you know, didn't provide them a space uh, to find that voice, which is so so vital today. Yeah, I would say from a like a cultural psychological context or from um, understanding, um, you, we might be able to trace that back to Asians being socialized to be quiet, to be um, you know, sit down. Uh, let your elders speak, that sort of thing. And then over time, maybe losing sense of what our voice might be. And I wonder if that's part of the, the angst we feel. Um, oh, yeah. 
I was going to say, uh, it, it's interesting because you're, you're American and I'm Canadian. Uh, and when I went to school at Fuller in Pasadena, um, I, I wasn't quite aware of the divide, um, the racial divide in the United States, but it's palpable there in a way that's not palpable in Canada. I mean, Canada, we have this mosaic model, as it must have been said, and and so everybody kind of like looks at each other and like recognize distinctions and stuff. But but in, in, in America, uh, Asians don't seem to count very much for, you know, they're just like, oh, you guys are on the side, but it's really about black and white people. Um, and and uh, I was really surprised by that, um, you know, just kind of as an outside observer. I sound like an American because we all have North American accents. But again, that, that sort of yeah. kind of strangeness, I, did, I wasn't prepared for that. No, I, I can totally remember sitting down with like, Chinese Canadians, my first year at region, mm. talking about like the language or the label of Asian American mm. as a kind of cultural, but also as like a racial marker in the United mm. States. Mm-hmm. They're talking about the differences of, of folks saying like, well, I see myself as Chinese and I live in Canada. Mm-hmm. So I guess that makes me a Chinese Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> there isn't like a set, there isn't like a body politic around Chinese Canadian-ness. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's increasingly maybe that's changing, but I, I think that, no, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it reminds me of, I think one of my guilty pleasures is, um, stand, stand up comedy that's racially oriented. And it, just, it reminds <laughs> me of so many, uh, I mean, and this is sometimes, sometimes it can be really helpful and insightful and sometimes it's, it's not as constructive, but, mm. um, in the work of, for example, like Trevor Noah or Dave mm. Chappelle, there's, you know, there's a constant mm. refrain about realities of race around the world. And of course, Racial identity and colorism, of course, are a universal phenomenon. But when they talk about, like, race in the United States, they always kind of describe it as, you know, this uh, extremely unique. Like, there's nowhere that does racism like the United States. Mm. <laughs> and it's yeah. sort of I- ironic because the United States is both um, one of the most diverse and, and multicultural places in the world. Mm-hmm. But maybe it makes sense, you know, that along with that has come, you know, a highly, highly racialized history. And, of course, it you know American history, which, you know, <laughs> there's, you, it, yeah, there's, a, there's a reason, right? No. We talk about land and labor and um, mm-hmm. it's there at the very beginning. And mm-hmm. so like, there is no United States without, you know, incredible racial struggle. And so it's just mm-hmm. kind of baked in, but, um, yeah. but it's, it's always, always there below the surface, which is, you know, why a part of, you know, why I hope to write this book. And it's funny because I really, I feel, I feel like in some ways I was late to the game. You know, like I think there are some folks who I never wanted to write a book with race in the title. Mm -hmm. I sometimes feel like people who do that are typecast or pigeonholed in a certain way. Like, Oh, you're one of those like race baiters. You're one of those kind of race industry people, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. And I just, I, you know, I went to seminary, not really thinking about race at all. Like I went to seminary thinking about other things, (laughs) but the, but the more, um, and this is a little bit to get ahead of things, but, you know, the more I went into my PhD and the more I spent time digging into academia, I just don't, yeah, I just don't understand. I don't think you can study theology in the, in the modern world and not bump up against race again and again, especially mm. as it intersects with the United States. But um, mm. anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, let's, let's move on. Um, I'm going to skip something here and go to our next question here, but just your book, uh, again, was published in 2017, your most recent book, um, well after the Black Lives Matter movement formally started, uh, following the acquittal of George Zimmerman, uh, who murdered Trayvon Martin. Uh, so I want to ask a very broad question here. Um, but how have your thoughts been influenced by the Black Lives Matter movement? Uh, you mentioned kind of a growing consciousness for yourself in terms of, uh, African-Americans and African-American struggle and church. 
uh, and it's, it's had a, a lot of influence on you. So now that Black Lives Matter, maybe it's been a year since it really started like flaring up, I guess, uh, you know, 2020, of course, was, was, a, was a watershed moment for it. But how have your thoughts been influenced by it? Um, yeah. Yeah, great question. Um, it's, it's tough, you know, to know where exactly to begin, especially in a moment when Black Lives Matter, really just as an idea or the rhetoric of Black Lives Matter has become such a, a lightning rod mm-hmm. in, in Christianity or it's become so polarizing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the first, honestly, when I think of Black Lives Matter, the first thing that comes to mind um, is how frequently in my neighborhood here in Southeast Seattle, which is kind of a historically working class immigrant neighborhood, but has become really gentrified in the past, you know, 10 years where um, the the running joke among my neighbors is that um, uh, black lives matter signs like yard signs or window signs have replaced black people. (laughs) Basically you kind of get the sense like, I know it's mostly white folks who put those signs up in their yards. Who knows if it's a kind of performative allyship or if they're signaling. Yeah. But it's kind of, it's this ironic thing that, you know, there used to be a lot of African-American, African immigrant families in my community, but increasingly Mm -hmm. they're being replaced by white people who put these signs up in their yards and say black lives matter. Um, Mm -hmm. And they they probably mean it with some sort of good intentions. It's just sort of ironic to me that um, like you could, you could argue that um, a visual sign of gentrification is these is these black lives matter signs that and like horizontal wood fencing so like those are those are the signs of gentrification which is you know i have a chapter in the book on that but mm-hmm. to get back to your original question um you know really for me in 2012 2013 around you know trayvon martin i was in the classroom and i think i had already done a little bit of work with race in my dissertation and, and was thinking about i mean really i would say for what has guided a lot of my academic and and you know, personal interest as well. I've just really been um, someone looking at cities, thinking about um, cities, their economies, their geography, the, the, the ways that the ways in which um, the life of cities broadly defined um, shapes our, our world and, and the life of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so really my entree sort of, um, or sort of, I don't know how to put it, the entry point for me into racial discourse has always been cities. And so mm-hmm. you can't, again, you can't really, I said earlier, you can't really study theology without studying race. I think for mm-hmm. me, it was that you can't really understand cities without understanding race. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. um, but, um, and, and that's kind of how that has turned cities into very um, contested and, and polarized, divided spaces. And so mm-hmm. when I think of Black Lives Matter as a, as a kind of cultural phenomenon, to me, where it goes is thinking about just the, the legacy of racial and economic segregation in our cities and neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that, to me, um, provides a lot of uh, substance and data and sort of concrete framework for understanding what it, like what is the genesis, uh, for me, of, of Black Lives Matter. When we talk about um, disproportionate use of force against people of color or over-policing in, you know, historically disenfranchised communities. Mm-hmm. That comes from a, a, a very clear um, historic inequity related to land and wealth and race. Right. And so I think even before these things are making national headlines, before there are 
before there's a hashtag, before there's protests in the streets. I mean, mm-hmm. this goes all the way back to essentially World War II mm-hmm. um, and, you know, massive federal investment that was highly racialized in the United States. And so, I mean, I'll try not to get too much in the weeds of that housing policy, but that's where it really begins. And the visual part of it, I mean, I, I can think of, I've lived in this part of Southeast Seattle, a really diverse community of color, you know, for 20 years. Mm. And, um, and again, before, um, uh, before Michael Brown, before Trayvon Martin, I can think of, I mean, I was doing youth ministry with high school kids mm. and seeing the disproportionate, I've seen, you know, kids getting arrested for not, for not having a bus pass, seeing, mm. I've seen Seattle police officers punch teenage girls in the face for jaywalking. I, I mean, I've, I've seen things that, you know, um, and these were not, you know, videos. These were the in the lives of high school students that I was doing youth ministry with. And wow. so it's kind of, I've seen those things firsthand and that, and that, um, in that way, it's kind of made more personal right. you know, the cry of Black Lives Matter because I see, um, you know, because I, I lived for 10 years in a Seattle Housing Authority redevelopment project that's mixed income and mixed, you know, mixed use, mixed ethnicity. Hmm. And I'd see, you know, um, the kids, the diverse classrooms that my kids grew up in. Mm-hmm. I would see the sort of different pathways and opportunities for these kids. Like, um, and so I guess it's all to say that these were not abstract ideas for me. Right? These, these were very yeah. close ideas to yeah. seeing like kids in my own neighborhood um, and to see how at every step I'd watch, you know, kids who my kids grew up with, mm-hmm. um, but just who, who um, did not have the sort of opportunities because of their family or because yeah. of their education yeah. Um, and sort of be, become a statistic, right? And so, right. I mean, this this maybe goes a, a different place, but I'll just say that, you know, when I was writing the book in mostly 2015 and 2016, mm-hmm. um, I remember I wrote a lot of this at a local cafe, and I was thinking to myself, because there's such a long timeline between writing a manuscript and, mm-hmm. and getting it, you know, edited and published. Mm-hmm. It, it's, a, it's ridiculous, actually, the turnaround time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, some of the even though it was published, I think in early 2017, you know, I didn't even have, I think some of those final edits were going in probably a year before. Mm. So I was literally rushing some of this off, thinking to myself at the, in the midst of, you know, the Ferguson riots and some of the protests against Michael Brown, I was thinking mm-hmm. like, I've got to get this to print before the American media's short attention span fades. And like, no one's interested in talking about race anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause I think there's, while there's always, you know, some relevance and interest, I think my thinking at the time was honestly, um, this Black Lives Matter thing could flame out, <laughs> and mm. you know, and my book will just kind of languish on the shelves. Yeah, not quite. Not, so that I, not that I wanted to ride the wave. I just wanted right. to sort of, you know, I wanted there to, I wanted it to, to resonate and connect yeah. with contemporary events. Right, right. And you know, yeah. who, who would know? You know, that I've got people picking up picking up the book now, saying like, oh, the references, you know, in the beginning to like Rodney King and mm-hmm. Michael Brown. Are now, I mean, this is all pre-George Floyd, but I, mm-hmm, I just think, mm-hmm. like, I hope in a small way, um, I hope we're seeing this sort of eerie and tragic pattern here, right, of saying mm-hmm. that, you know, how, me- how many more times mm-hmm. uh, does this have to happen? Um, how many more videos will we watch? Mm-hmm. How many more trials where we will we see where there's kind of outcry in the streets afterwards? Mm-hmm. Um, how many more... Um, young black, you know, men and women 
and for that matter, also indigenous and immigrant and Pacific Islander kids. Mm-hmm. How many more times are we going to see this uh, before we kind of, you know, slap some sense into ourselves and say like, you know, maybe there's something, you know, it's kind of, to me, it's kind of that, that classic metaphor of, um, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm going to kind of botch the specifics here, but it's kind of like, it's the people going off the edge of the waterfall mm. and there's like all these emergency responders catching people at the bottom of the waterfall saying like, you know, how do we help these, you know, these poor people who are getting thrown off the edge of this waterfall? And I just think that that's, that's um, so much of our public hand-wringing about these crises that are very episodic or the seemingly episodic. And I think no one is really asking the question of going up, you know, moving upstream and say, what is throwing these people into the water to begin with? <laughs> right, right. Like, a, like that would seem to be a really pertinent question. You know, we're pretty smart. We, we have a lot of resources. <laughs> we have a lot of information. Like, why, why, why are we just trying to catch the people at the bottom? Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that to me, that's what, you know, Black Lives Matter is a, is a very basic cry, right? Mm-hmm. To say like, hey, move up, you know, look upstream mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and look at what this country has done to us. And, uh, and, you know, this is not just about, um, it's about so much more than police brutality, although obviously that, that's a piece. So, I mean, right. I haven't really connected at all to maybe how that's been formative for my faith, but, um, yeah, but I just think it, it's impossible to live where I live and to be in the schools and community organizations that I'm a part of and to not just sort of say that, and, and maybe just a, a quick footnote here is mm. I'm, I'm not saying that all that is associated with Black Lives Matter is unassailable. I think that there are, you know, it's, it's a broad and diverse yes, kind yes. of decentralized movement. Um, but I do think that at, at some very basic elementary level, right, like we have to be able to affirm that this cry comes from something, you know, deeply historic and deeply unjust, you know, in our nation's history. So mm-hmm. I'll maybe just stop there if you have thoughts. No, I really appreciate that. I think, um, you and I, uh, being of East Asian descent, we have tended to get passes because we've been honorary whites, right? The saying goes, right? And it's it, when 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 Black Lives Matter started flaring up um, as an, an actual movement, uh, first on Twitter and then in the streets. But um, I think it raised my consciousness. Um, I just I had no framework for this. I grew up in Canada, um, and of course, like being non-white, I've gotten my fair share of racism as well. But uh, it's always been more in the mold of, of microaggressions, you know, that kind of thing, some right. macro ones here and there. Right. But that's, you know, everybody's experience when you're not white. Um, but then it was very much unlike what I was hearing or understanding of what it's like to grow up being uh, like African-American or uh, you know, a brown person in America, just having uh, police treat you so differently. Um, interestingly enough, I had a friend who actually is a lawyer uh, he got pulled over in Maricopa County in uh, Arizona, and he was jailed uh, for speeding. Uh, and 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 years later, uh, he and I talked about it, and 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 he said he just realized like, wow, that was that was like Sheriff Joe and and Maricopa County, and that was like the most racist county in in the U.S. or whatever it is, right? Uh, just an awful place. But this is an this is an Asian lawyer from Vancouver who got pulled over and jailed for speeding. You know? Yeah. Um, so, so that was a taste of it, but that was, you know, 20 years ago. And then here we are uh, at this place, um, you know, and I think it caught me by surprise uh, because my regular everyday experience is not full of be careful of cops, kids. You know, um, I never have to have that conversation with my kids. My kids are Sesame Street and, and are like, 
oh, the cops are my friends. Like, you know, if I'm lost, I can talk to a police officer. You know, it's just fine. If there's a police officer around, it's going to make things safer. You know, very different than an African-American, African-Canadian experience. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm really great. I, I totally grew up with that as well. Kind of, mm. I, I joke in the beginning of the, or it's not really so much a joke. It's a brief description of my, it's like the street I grew up on in North Carolina where like all the neighbors left their doors unlocked, mm-hmm. and kids played together. And it really was a kind of idyllic suburban existence. But, um, and, you know, I think, again, coming back to, you know, my early years living in the community where I am now, thinking maybe this is like, like the early 2000s, um, before I even had kids, it was just really striking to me. It was the first place I had really uh, rooted mm. where there had been a very historic difference in relationship with the perception of the police. And I think the mm. first time I ever called 911, I just remember, um, I, don't, I don't think it was even, I think I called the non-emergency line mm. because somebody had come down my, the street in front of my townhouse mm-hmm. and like um, vandalized all the cars who were parked, including like my car was parked in front of my place. Oh, and someone had come with like some big metal tool and just like scraped 15 cars in a row. It's like they drove by and just, <laughs> I was like, man, what the heck, you know, oh. I was parked here. And I just feel like you know, it's, it's basically got this massive, you know, gouge <laughs> on the side. It, like again, with everybody on my street. So I remember calling the non-emergency line and said, like, Hey, there's been an incident. And it was funny. Like, I don't even think they came. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember mm-hmm. thinking like, shouldn't someone file a report or something? Yeah. But I think the sort of response from the police was like, well, you know, we'll, we'll make a note of it. Um, <laughs> we've got other, we've got other things we need to focus on, oh, but you know, nobody's bleeding. Nobody's, there's been no assaults. Like, yeah, I think, I think you're good to go. But I, even that, I think about how my kids are, are growing up in this neighborhood, thinking very differently about, about the police. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's tough, right? I don't, I don't mean to make this a sort of um, demonized law enforcement conversation, but it's just, it's just different. I think, you know, I say early in the book that, you know, a lot of our perspectives on these issues are, are shaped by where we live. Mm-hmm. So I think if we just got a little bit of a window into, you know, historically disenfranchised communities relationship with policing mm-hmm. it would make a lot more sense. I think, you know, we, we, it's the very least we can do to give people the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the perceptions and choices they make are logical, right? Like that, that they're mm-hmm. like they're that fear of police comes from something logical, right? Yes. Like, um, and comes from experience, right? And so yes. even if that's not your experience, can we just give people, you know what I mean? Can we just give people a little bit of credit to say like, right. You know, if I'm not afraid of the police, maybe someone else has a, a real reason to be mm-hmm. afraid of the police. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. so, very true. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. I mean, like you, you talk a lot. I mean, the title of the book is race and place. And I think one of the things that was resonating throughout me as I was reading your book was just, I live in a very Chinese suburb of Vancouver. In fact, it's not so far out. I mean, I live in Richmond, which is like very Chinese dominated, has great Chinese food. Oh so, yeah, you know, great for living. Like every day, my wife and I like are so happy here because it's like, oh yeah, let's just get you know this takeout from this place, and it's like excellent Chinese food. Um, so great for people who you know love Chinese food like us. But um, you know, it's it's so 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 Chinese. Um, and what's interesting though, I think over the last few years, um, I had begun to notice there's a lot of black people in my neighborhood, which is not a bad thing. Actually, I, I quite like the diversity. Um, however. Um, I, I'm always a bit of like a, 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 like, a, how am I supposed to make contact? Um, you know, because, because my, my, my circles are all very Chinese, Canadian and all that stuff, but I'm always like, Oh, I really would love to have friends from different places and different 
kind of spaces to to sort of not keep my head and you know packing uh peanuts kind of thing you know where where you're just kind of seeing one thing and only understanding one thing um but kind of segue into my next questions um so um what if anything would you change about some of the propositions you would put forward for praxis um so thoughtful action or contemplative practice for people who want to make a difference for the planted so i see myself as planted in this in this part of the world um you know it's 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 so expensive <laughs> to get anything else. I'm sort of wondering, without me moving into, say, for example, the downtown east side and unintentionally gentrifying that environment, because here I am, this East Asian guy with, with education and, and a family and kids and all that stuff. I mean, like, uh, how, what does it mean then to, to engage with praxis, thoughtful, contemplative action uh, where, where we're planted? Yeah, good question. Um... It's funny, I get asked this question a lot, you know, given all of the sort of relevance of the topic and the turmoil, you know, in our contemporary moment around, you know, what would I change? What would I say now? And I feel like every time I answer this, it's maybe a little bit different because on on one level, I think the sort of basic recommendations for practice in the text, um, I, I wouldn't change a whole lot in terms of kind of the... Um, the entry points, right, of of a more critical self-reflection around location, how we've located our lives, mm-hmm. you know, residentially, socially, and vocationally, and saying that, you know, I try to, I try to both press on that issue of location, but not make it a sort of legalistic, you've got to move to this kind of zip code to experience such and such, but to say mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, the way we've located our lives is is not only our home address, or it's not only related to the home address of a, like a church or an organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are, are ways that, you know, I think there's still a lot of relevance to saying, you know, we've got to think about how there's um, no community without proximity. And there's no proximity without shared place. And so wherever we're located, we've got to think about those, you know, um, those ties of connection that happen in, in geography. Mm. And of course, all of that requires all these postures of, humility and listening and thinking about partnership and thinking about um, what God is already doing in a place before we get there and how God is moving, you know, um, oftentimes outside of the the channels that we imagine and so forth. So there's some of that that, you know, I think is still relevant. Um, And I think along with that, this, um, you know, I borrow from other voices and authors and theologians. I love the work of Brian Stevenson and his work Mm -hmm. at the Equal Justice Initiative, who basically Mm -hmm. says, um, you know, and he does this for a broad audience that's primarily non-religious, and I appreciate the ways he has kind of um, translated the convictions of his Christian faith to a wider, um, you know, a much wider readership and viewership of all of his work. But, you know, he talks a lot about proximity and says really the central call um, of both the sort of thoughtful citizen and the person of faith mm-hmm. is to become more proximate. Um, to people's mm-hmm. pain and suffering and to mm-hmm. not allow um, the kind of narrative of upward mobility to take us into further and further geographic insulation. Mm-hmm. I think that, that in and of itself, I feel like that's just, you know, that's it. Like that, that is a mm-hmm. deeply challenging uh, call to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, in terms of, so, I mean, all those things I would say are, are still relevant in, in this moment. Um, Mm-hmm. What I would change, though, um, I, I think, you know, I'll say, hopefully this won't take us too far down like a partisan conversation, you know, mm-hmm. for, for a, you know, an, an audience outside of the U.S. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
I mentioned earlier, I was making final edits of this book right as Donald Trump was just becoming like mm. the official nominee of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. So I made a passing reference to Trump in one chapter about his kind of build the wall rhetoric and how he mm-hmm. ran on this. And it was kind of the outrageousness of this. Mm-hmm. I had no idea at that time, though, that he would become the president mm-hmm. and then become a kind of president who just broke the mold in all the worst ways, right? And mm-hmm. who kind of rallied um, and and reinvigorated a sort mm-hmm. of white nationalism yes. that I just never would have imagined. You know, I think mm-hmm. about, I use images in a lot of my classes from like the, um, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in mm-hmm. 2017 when mm-hmm. you have literal Nazis and neo-Nazis mm-hmm chanting you know slogans with torches mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know all around kind of this controversy of of taking down a, a confederate monument mm-hmm. in this little college town uva mm-hmm. which is like a you know charlottesville's a pretty liberal town mm-hmm. and uh it's just it's really jarring you know i just thought like yeah. i think in those moments and this is happening like the, the year after my book's released or months even and mm-hmm. i just remember thinking like wow this is insane like, I, I just, I think the book is written, and I think you have another question about this, um, which we may or may not get to, but I think the book is written to, like, this broad audience. And mm-hmm. this is true of, you know, it's published with InterVarsity Press, which does a lot of work with kind of a broadly evangelical kind of Christian reader. Mm-hmm. But the book is very, you know, um, is written to folks kind of with this sort of gentle invitation of like, hey, come and consider these ideas. <laughs> like, <laughs> did you know that redlining happened in the United States? Did you know that you can draw mm-hmm. a direct line between like wealth inequality today mm-hmm. and these housing policies? You know, it's, it's kind of like I'm building my case, you know, trying to persuade the reader through, you know, pastoral anecdotes and so forth. And in some ways, that's just a genre of the book, right? Like mm-hmm. if you want a general readership book, it goes this way. But I think I've increasingly in the last year or so, um, especially with all that has happened with COVID and George Floyd and so forth, I think I've, you know, found myself wondering more and more, um, does this method even work? (laughs) Does does kind of gently inviting people to consider these historic connections, Mm -hmm. does this this matter? I mean, I'll I'll maybe give a small example and, you know, feel free to... um, you know, interject if this is taking us in the wrong, no, wrong direction. But, like I was telling uh, my wife this story about this very difficult undergraduate student I had mm. like um, a couple of years ago. Mm. I think this is maybe just before my book was published. And I was talking, I was teaching a class on urban ministry where we talk about um, kind of what I just described, where we say like, Hey, these historic U S government policies and also, you know, backed by private banking and so forth, mm-hmm. like, racialized the wealth gap and made very clear distinctions between, you know, opportunities of home ownership for predominantly white families. Mm-hmm. And they very clearly disenfranchise, um, especially black people and all communities of color from, from building equity and home ownership. Right? Mm-hmm. They were literally barred from this opportunity to build wealth. And I said, you could basically just, you know, here's the charts, here's the data, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. that wealth gap that exists, exists today because mm-hmm. of this. Mm. And this woman, she, this woman who was uh, kind of an older undergraduate student, but happened to have a background in real estate, mm. just stood up in class. And I guess I, I should give her credit for her courage because she tried to take me on mm. and to say, like, I don't agree with this. This is wrong. You know, <laughs> none of, she, she basically was saying, like, you know, the Civil Rights Act, 
you know, made all of this irrelevant, you know, housing, mm. racial discrimination is illegal today. And it, and it is. Um, but it was funny to me as the more I thought about it after the fact, I mean, we had, you know, a little bit of drama in class and, and whatever she stayed <laughs> after. Her and and uh, right, I, gave her right. bad, I gave her a bad grade because she deserved it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was kind of like what struck me is, and I guess I say this is a few years ago, but it, it's eerily reminiscent to me now of like many conversations I've had over the past year where what we're arguing about is not actually the argument. Mm. Like I'm, I'm not, I was not up against the actual data of historical argument. Mm-hmm. It was really more of like, we were operating out of such different worldviews mm-hmm. um, that she had already kind of, she had, you know, a kind of social cultural epistemology mm-hmm. that was like orbiting a different planet. And it didn't matter what kind of data I had. It didn't matter how airtight my argument was. It didn't mm-hmm. matter that I was the professor record of the class and I was mm-hmm. giving her a grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and I now see with more clarity how similar that is to our present moment. And I guess to, you know, to try to land this back on, you know, the book, <laughs> I almost feel like this, you know, people who buy books with race in the title, Mm. are sort of the, the proverbial choir right mm. mm-hmm. and i'm increasingly yes. caught with the question of like how do i get um this material and this idea this discourse to a broader audience because i know the people who most need to have this conversation are, are not buying books with race in the title and are right. not and, and they are again kind of orbiting a different epistemological planet if you will mm. this yes. is maybe unique to the polarization in the united states and our kind of alternative facts and post-truth moment that's really just, it's really disorienting to me as an academic. Like I spend my time in the classroom trying to, you know, I mean, on some very basic level, teach critical thinking and present mm-hmm. arguments and make connections. Mm-hmm. But I realize more and more that like for a large portion of the U S population, um, it, it, it makes, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter how many books, how many lectures, how many footnotes, how many arguments I make. Right. And I think it comes back to, um, you know, this, you know, we're so polarized in this moment that there's just, there's no trust. There's, there's sort of no, um, there's no common ground. Yeah. And I think, and so I think maybe that's an argument for writing the book in a gentle way to build that trust and common ground. I think there is Mm. some effect Mm. of that, but I think on the flip side, I don't know if this makes sense, but it's a way of saying that like, I'm just not sure what is needed at this point. It's more books like mine. And so that's kind of the honest take in, in 2021. Wow. But like if I could rewrite it, I think um, I almost need to, I think there's parts of it I need to make more pointed. And then mm-hmm. there's parts of it where I need to jettison that whole approach mm-hmm. and say like, I need to get this material in the hands of folks. Um, you know, it's almost like I need some sort of, I don't know, I need to like become a different person in order to get a different audience. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You just listened to part one of Race in Place with Dr. David Leong of Seattle Pacific University. Sorry to cut myself off there, but as you can tell, Dr. Leong was on fire and I didn't want to interrupt him. Please tune in again for part two of Race in Place. Thank you for listening.